2: Seth Godin of Purple Cow fame writes, Trust and attention, these are the scarce items in a post-scarcity world. Now, I'm obviously fairly partisan on this issue, but would certainly add fear to this list as well. Or specifically, how do you embrace and leverage fear in your systematic effort towards market dominance? No one said market dominance would be easy. It's diligent and deliberate. It's a three-year marathon where one of your end goals is that you end up having discovery meetings with 60% of your market. It's both ambitious and arduous to certainly set a course for market dominance, but the results are irrefutable if your inputs are consistent. For instance, understanding that the constraint of your sales system is not headcount or sales methodology or even price point. It's the flow rate of conversations with relevant people that you have at the top of your funnel that is so commonly the real constraint to your market dominant success. But as entrepreneurs and sales leaders, knowing what we need to do to fix this top of the funnel constraint is often a dreadful and fear inducing exercise because we know what this real constraint is called. It stirs in the bellies of sales professionals everywhere. And it's not the Boogeyman or Baba Yaga or Pennywise, it's the cold call. And this king of all top of funnel constraints leads many teams to simple displacement, the simple avoidance of what truly needs to be done by doing something easier with far less friction, like sending email, or better yet, sending an email campaign, or doing SEO, lots and lots of SEO. Anything but jumping on the phone and talking to strangers. Even in our own community of sales professionals on LinkedIn, there are countless and doggedly argued threads every week where a new sales expert likes to wax on about the final death knell of the cold call, or that having your reps cold call is a colossal waste of both capital and goodwill. They'll spin compelling data about pickup rates or dial to conversion rates or even quote rep turnover percentages to win minds to their side. Cruelly enforcing this medieval and antiquated exercise in futility must stop in our sales craft, they'll say. Because fear, right? Fear of employing a practice that is seen as dated. Fear of people leaving your organization because they don't like to call. They don't like to pick up the phone, fear of doing something that doesn't get results. And mostly though, we fear the experience of making cold calls ourselves, especially as leaders and entrepreneurs. But if we're committed to be market dominant, we'd be wise to let fear play its healthy role with our competition. Let your competitors embrace that fear and refuse to use an indispensable tool like the cold call. But we are also wise to let fear play its role in the cold call itself, with the prospect. Because we want to use that to create tension in a relationship that we can then resolve. And according to the Van Helsing of go-to-market strategies, my partner on the other side of this microphone, Chris Beal, the way you properly run a cold call is acknowledging that you start from a position of fear because the other person is indeed afraid of you. They're afraid of you because you're an invisible stranger and an invisible stranger is the worst possible thing in the environment of evolution. Those are the people from across the river who paint their faces wrong, they put a bone in their ears versus their nose and maybe they even talk funny. Their drum beats don't sound quite like yours either and you would really prefer that they stay on the other side of the river where they belong. So we have this inherent fear with invisible strangers and when we cold call somebody we trigger that fear and they may express that fear in pushback. That's what we really dread isn't it? That's the fear. Feelings like annoyance and anger and dismissiveness, whatever it happens to be. But when we're afraid something interesting also happens. We tend not to run away. We want to get away But instead, we put a little defense mechanism up, a little squid ink, as Chris likes to say, so to speak. And that's the point where we need to embrace fear in the call. And so in this episode, we learn from Chris how to properly use fear and how we ultimately turn that fear into trust, and then that trust into curiosity, and then that curiosity into real commitment. So turn off all the lights, light a candle, cue the macabre organ music this is the market dominance guys in this week's episode entitled don't look under the bed how to make fear your friend in cold calling mm-hmm. always tell when you're about to spew wisdom, your posture changes and everything else. (laughs) So, so I want to make sure I capture this, so. Well,
0: actually, I I think it does map onto this whole concept of market dominance. They're both marathons, and market dominance is a three-year marathon where you you end up having discovery meetings with 60% of your market. And you're at a trot, you're never sprinting, you're never pushing. You know, that whole end of month, end of quarter, all that stuff means nothing when you're going after market dominance. You're just doing it at a trot. You're not pushing, you're not discounting. Sure, when you're doing a market entry part, you always discount. Usually you discount by adding services so that that you don't charge for. The best way to discount is always to simply do more and make sure you don't charge for it. The temptation is to say, well, since we're doing more, gosh, you know, this must be part of our business. Folks are valuing it. If you don't charge for something, people won't value it. Therefore, we should charge for it. But that is a mistake when you're doing the early part of the chasm crossing for a particular market. When you're chasm crossing, you have to buy your way into the market. You can either buy it with a lower price. You can buy it with greater services, which is lower price. And the smart way to do it is to hold your price point, your guest at price point for the core offering, and add services that you don't name, because that's another key. When you name the services, then you feel like you have to charge for them. You just provide them. So in our case, for instance, for our company, the services we provide have always been extensive, as you know. We do this immense amount of consulting. We do analysis along the way. How are your reps doing? What's your talent spread like? Recommending best practices, going in and offering to do coaching. All this stuff that everybody else in the entire world of sales, services, training, consulting, and so forth, they charge for. We don't even give a name to them. Because mm-hmm. if we gave a name to them, then it would be tempting to package them and charge it would. For them. Yeah, right. And there's two problems with that. Problem number one is you forget what it is you're trying to do. You're trying to dominate a market with an offering that scales. And whatever the service thing is probably isn't an office that scales. Maybe it is, but you don't know. And it's not what you set out to do. So that's one. Two is, as soon as you charge for services, somebody is going to end up owning that part of the P&L internally. Yeah. You yeah. have to right. have a sales head or a business head, a GM or something for that part of the business. Yeah. Professional stuff. services. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. That stuff is easier to sell than your core product because it has no edges to it. Mm. There's never any edge to the services you'll provide. If somebody says, well, does the service include X? The answer is always Yes. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> Because it's a service. And at the margin, we could do one more thing. And one more thing wouldn't be a big thing in this particular case. So you end up kind of putting your product boundaries, so to speak, around your services through policies, whereas your actual product has natural boundaries. You know, if I sell you a Tesla, you might say, well, I could use it as a doorstop but it's not going to fit very well through, you know, the frontier of your your house or into your office. You're not going to be too tempted to use the Tesla as a doorstop, which is a low value use of the Tesla or to use it as a planter for your tomatoes. You know, Mm -hmm. there's sort of a natural boundary around your Tesla, but there's not a natural boundary around my service to drive you wherever it is you need to go, because you just might decide, Hey, you know what? Instead of flying to San Francisco, I'd like to be driven there. I didn't put that in my business plan. That I was going to be gone for so long that I'm so far away I couldn't pick up another passenger. And by the way, who's going to buy my damn Teslas now, right? Yeah, right, right. So it's, it's a horrible mistake that's made in market dominance plays to price down incorrectly. But you must price down. To enter a market, you have to offer something that overcomes the natural hesitancy that people have toward buying something new from someone that they haven't done business with before. And by the way, doesn't have a single reference. And you can't use your pre references because they were buying your stuff, not as product to solve a broken mission, critical business process. They were buying it for competitive advantage and will not talk about it. And by the way, by the time you get to this part of the, re- of the process, they hate you. <laughs> so, so they're not going to say nice things anyway, but they're not going to mm-hmm. say anything, which is the good news. So it's, they hate you, but yeah. so what? They don't hate you by the way and think your stuff is bad. They, they just hate you because mm-hmm. they had happy years about what they could do competitively and some other part of their value chain broke down and they asked mm-hmm. you to help fix it. And of course you couldn't because you can't fix whole companies. And so yeah. you end up always in this relationship where people in the pre-chasm market, companies in the pre-chasm market are buying for these, this extraordinary reason, which is I need to go kill the competition. And they can't kill the competition most of the time and so you know they they just keep piling up the requirements and the pressure on you the provider of the magic beans the magic technology and eventually you get everything you need out of it because yeah this stuff really works thank you very much dear visionary customer you forced me to make my technology work now i need to package it a product it as a product and take it to market across the chasm which means i have to price down the chasm gets wider the higher the price of my offering relative to the certainty of value that a customer is going to get out of it, my first, yeah, that just widens the chasm. So I want to narrow the chasm by allowing that first customer to buy at what feels like a lower price. And the low, the best way to lower your price is to add services. I will do more for you. And the worst mistake you can make is simply to package those services and and to say, hey, this is a new product. Like we've finally gotten to the point of almost packaging flight school. But flight school has the funny quality for us as a permanent pre-chasm resident. Right? We sell competitive advantage. So we don't ever get to cross the chasm correctly. Right? So what we have to do is seed the pre-chasm to the point where anybody else who wants in has got to get through our wall of fire.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right.
0: Everybody who is properly addicted to connect and sell for competitive advantage is taken. And if you want yeah. one of them, that earth, we have to scorch the earth on the other side. Yeah, yeah. But we have a beautiful mm-hmm. little post-chasm offering called Flight School. Mm-hmm. It takes your reps and turns them into the top 5% of cold callers in the world. And it does it reliably. But you know what? And that's, but that's not a standalone product. It's not because it only works with the Connect and cell stuff because otherwise you're not having enough conversations. You can feel right. good about it. But being an expert at having three conversations a day is just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's like making a race car driver out of somebody and saying, by the way, we go to 7-Eleven once a week.
1: Connect and Sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect & Sell's powerful platform. Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect & Sell's teleprompter capability as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. Visit connectandsell.com. listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your hosts, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro.
0: When I was a little kid, we moved out into the desert, North Scottsdale, right? What is now, you would see this as way down in town, right? But back then it was way out in the middle of nowhere. So think Cactus and 68th Street.
2: Yeah. that's where I'm, I'm about a block away from there right now.
0: Yeah, so you know, you know the area. Well, this was all open desert back then. We were one of the first houses in the area. The big deal was that you got to, it was zoned for animals. It was actually zoned, believe it or not. It wasn't unzoned. It wasn't, it was all part of Scottsdale. Scottsdale was annexed all the way up to, you know, Pinnacle Peak way back in the day.
1: In oh, the 50s. Mm-hmm.
0: So Scottsdale is a, the most visionary uh, annexation In the history, actually, I still think in in the US, you would classify it with Jacksonville and a couple of other towns that figured this out early, which is we're in a place that's naturally going to grow as the economy changes over time. And so let's take all the land we can and put it inside the city boundaries and let that be sort of our, it's it's like pre-making a legacy. It was very, very clever. And people knew it, by the way. It wasn't unconscious. You know, it was controversial, but it wasn't unconscious. So... You know, we were the kind of people who were going to buy into this vision and move out into the desert, which is what we did. So we moved from sort of Camelback and Scottsdale Road, where we, we were in 1957, in 1963, something like that, too. We moved out there to 68th. It's actually Janan and between 67th and 68th. One little, like a long block south of Cactus, right? Got it. Mm-hmm. And we zoned for horses. And part of the idea was that we were going to have horses and there was no limit. You could have like 20 of them if you wanted, who would do that. And we were on an acre and then we bought the acre behind us. So we had an acre for the homestead itself. And then we had an acre for training the horses So we had cavaletties and barrels and everything out there. So um, I was the youngest of the family. When you're the youngest, you have four older sisters and the oldest is a horse expert. It's kind of intimidating. And yet I had to have a horse, right? So, you know, I had this horse, which I shared for a while with my sister, Cindy, his name is Tim. And Tim was a big, gentle quarter horse gelding, 16 hands, big, kind of a stocky animal. Very, very gentle. But he was a horse. You know, Mm -hmm. he was big enough. He could outrun me all day. He He could hurt me if he wanted to. And I was a little kid, so I'm like seven, eight years old, right? And I've got to learn how to put a bridle on a horse by myself because there was never anybody around to help. Mm-hmm. So how did I do it? Well, I was taught by one of my sisters how to do this, which is you come up to the horse and you hold your hands about this, this far apart and palms down, fists closed, and you have like a carrot in each hand. But the horse doesn't know, and horse's sense of smell is pretty good, but not strong enough to be able to tell which hand you have the carrot in. And anyway, it's in both. So they don't, you know, the horse has to make a choice. Yeah. And that's what you're trying to do, is to take this fear relationship. Because they're prey animals, they're afraid of anything approaching. They have a stereotype set of responses, humans do also, to being approached. And before you can get the bridle on the horse, you have to get the horse to approach you. That's why we cold call or have unscheduled calls, ambush calls in order to set a meeting, but we never hold the meeting that's putting the bridle on in that call, because as soon as we do that, we abrogate the trust that we set up for them to come to the meeting in the first place. That is, they haven't come to us yet. So Thornburg talks to his victims before their ears have come up and are facing forward. The horse tells you that it's ready to consider your proposition when instead of laying its ears back, which is to listen for the saber-toothed tiger behind it that's gonna jump on its back and drive its fangs, on either side of its withers, which is why their damn fangs are so long, right? It takes a lot to penetrate a horse on the back, and that's why you know, <laughs> the guys had big, the big daggers there, you know, as part of the mess. Mm-hmm. But horses don't like things behind them, so you've occupied their attention in front of them, so they listen behind them. That's what their fear response. They're smart, right? They gotta work 360, you're a prey animal, and your mm-hmm. body is precious to you. They have very low reproductive rates, animals with low reproductive rates, are extremely cautious about their corpus, about their body, because it's, it's worth a lot. You know, you're a mare. You might have six foals, seven foals, eight foals in your life. That could be it. It's a really big deal to die, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. there are some animals like dying's no big deal, right? They already had 43,000 babies last year. So are <laughs> you know, right. like, right. Promiscuous with their bodies. And the big animals with the low reproductive rates, whether they're carnivores or whether they're prey animals, all have the same mm-hmm. strategy, which is never get injured. That's their strategy, mm-hmm. never get mm-hmm. into, it, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't like to get in fights. That's why bears do what they do. They act in a certain way. You really watch carefully, and it's like they're really trying not to get hurt. Even when they fight each other, they're, you know, that's the only time that they are willing to risk it because they're, work, they're fighting directly for reproduction at that point. It's a one-for-one one game. I win, a, I win somebody gets pregnant. Yeah, that, one, right. that one they'll fight for, but they won't do it in order to take down prey unless they're starving. Because it's not worth it. It's just not worth getting injured because you get injured and you go into this downward spiral, right? So horses are like this. There is go back and all this. To get the horse to come to you requires curiosity. The way you run a cold call is you start from fear. The other person is afraid of you. They're afraid of you because you're an invisible stranger. An invisible stranger is the worst possible thing in the environment of evolution. Those are the people from across the river paint their faces wrong. They put put a bone in their ears instead of their nose. They talk funny. Their drum beats don't sound correct. Everything about them is just uncomfortable. And you would really prefer they stay on the other side of the river where they belong. And if they show up and are invisible, that means it's night. And people who show up in the middle of the night uninvited to your village are not your friends. They're not bringing you a Bud Light. They're there for, you know, ultimately for reproductive purposes, right? To take over the situation. You've collected something of value and now they're coming to get it, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have this inherent fear of invisible strangers. And when we cold call somebody, we trigger that fear instantly and they express that fear as pushback, annoyance, anger, dismissive, whatever it happens to be. Everybody has a different way within a characteristic set of ways of handling fear when we're afraid we tend not to run away we want to get away but we want to put a little defense up a little squid ink right so you see this on almost every cold call it's not hey i'm so glad you called me it's just not and yet why not after all i mean it could be something wonderful right and we all say no it's about you know the fact that we've interrupted them and blah 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 and they're busy Really, have you ever watched somebody in their day? They ain't doing shit. They're not doing anything most of the time. They're they're kind of pretending to be busy. They would love a break, quite frankly. You know, their job bores them. It irritates them. All sorts of things are going on they don't like. A little break might be nice to talk to somebody. However, you ambush them. If it had been a good friend who called, they'd act different. Because you're not an invisible stranger. You're just an invisible friend. And invisible friends, friends in the dark, are just fine. Strangers in the dark are presumed to be enemies. So that's the big issue we have with cold calling. So Thornburg actually goes through that process well. I mean, the guy spent, he took an hour and a half lesson from me one day, one one on one. So he got most of it and he just went off to apply it. So he's good at the beginning because he goes through the fear to trust part really well. But then the question is when you get a little bit of trust, how do you spend it? So with the horse, how you spend it is, you spend it on curiosity. So you get trust by just standing there and not approaching them. You approach, you trigger the fear. You wait, the fear decays. Then the question is what next? And the answer is curiosity, which is why you just stand there with your hands out, palms down, fists closed. And eventually the horse will exercise that curiosity and they'll make a commitment. The commitment is to one hand over the other. When they do that, you turn the hand over, there's the carrot, they get busy with the carrot, you reach behind yourself to where the bridle is, you pull the bridle around, you don't put the bridle on them, you touch them on the side of the face, which they kinda like. Because once you're touching them and not hurting them, you must be one of them. Because there's only one thing that touches a horse and doesn't hurt it, and that's another horse. A friend, Mm -hmm. member of the herd, right? So you actually become a member of the herd through touch. And you're feeding them, and so now you got a twofer. And then eventually the touch is allowed to come up high enough to get the bridle to kind of put it around their muzzle and get, and get one loop over the ear. And once you're there, you know, then you have a second thing you got to teach them to do, which is separate, which is get the damn bit in their mouth. You know, that's like, okay, food, bit, e e e. you know, and you kind of have to do that, right? That's getting to the close. That's, that's done in discovery. But my point is there's a strict separation. between approach, triggering fear, moving that fear to trust. So with a horse, we do it through inaction. Because if you're still and you're not continuing to approach them, you're acting exactly the opposite of a predator that's close and within view. So for a horse, you signal, I'm trustworthy just by not moving. With a human, we signal we're trustworthy by telling them we see the world their way. I know I'm in an interruption. And then we show them a path for solving the problem. The problem is us. We're the fearful thing. Well, how do I solve the problem? Listen to me a little bit and I'll go away a, of a simple offer. Right? I know I'm in an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds tell you why I called? And if you say those two things exactly like that, just exactly those words, not some other words that make you comfortable, but yeah. words that allow somebody to say, wait a minute, you see the world my way. You are an interruption.
2: If you want to yeah. blow it, all you have
0: to do is just say this. I know I'm interrupting your day. So you throw the circumstances under the bus and you're saying, I'm not the problem.
2: But people- so why the, 20, why the 27 seconds again? I know it's a playful tone, right? We've talked about that. Is it too cheesy? Is it too, does it diminish your stature or your status at all? Or does tone Matter and how you sell that twenty-seven seconds.
0: Tone matters a lot. You have to say this. The the twenty-seven second ask is playful, curious. Come along with me. Mm -hmm. Come along with me. I have twenty. It's it's almost offhand. Can I have twenty-seven seconds? Tell you why I called. There's this real disconnect between I know I'm an interruption, and then the natural next thing to say is, and I'm sorry, I'll hang up, right? But instead of saying that, you offer an alternative plan. And when you offer a plan to somebody, you're offering the plan. You're not demanding the plan. You, you don't think you have a right to it. So you, you use a tone of voice that says, come with me. It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. So now I have a first order purpose, which is let's have some fun. So it's, it's very, very gentle. But it's like, can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? But you, re- you are asking for something. Can I have? You're not asking may I have, by the way. You're not asking for permission. You're asking a question of fact. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? You're saying you're in charge. You could choose to give me these 27 seconds. If you do, I'll tell you why I called. If not, I guess you won't know. You know it's mm-hmm. a, a subtlety in there. I mean, this yeah. is what's so interesting to me about market dominance. I've been through it, I'll go through, you know, we'll have to go through this like, over and over and over to get it across. That's great, sorry. Yeah. over here is controlling the market by having discovery calls with 60% of the market in three years. It's like most people don't even think that, but that's way over here, right? I go through the process of how do we get, I get a discovery call? Well, I need to talk to somebody. Why do I need to talk to them? Because they have to trust me enough to decide to spend 15 minutes with me. How am I going to get them to trust me enough to do that? Well, I'm starting from fear. My alternative is to let my competitor go down the hard road and start from fear. So I could start just from curiosity, send them an email. Email is not scary. Seems like a superior opening move, right? I send you an email, you're not afraid of it. However, there's no tension in there to create anything out of. There's no energy, right? How how much does it cost me, self image wise, to dismiss an email? I think I'll do it right now. Let me find one. I'm going to find an email and dismiss it right now. Yeah. I bet I have. How do you feel?
2: How do you feel? Any tension in doing that?
0: This is not bothering me in the least. Uh, somewhere in here, there will be one. Here we go. For your team, we work together with accounting and finance, temporary help in your department, and do hope we can work with you again. To make this possible, I'd like to offer you a $400 invoice credit. Hmm. Oh, well, it's gone. hmm And that's even somebody who claims they know me.
1: Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get Uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode.